up on today's show, we're headed into stage three of the reopening. And if anything is going to mess it up, it will be the Delta variant. The border staying closed between Canada and the United States. Kind of symptomatic of the relationship as we move apart. And you can't trust Rotten Tomatoes anymore, so we'll go to you for your movie reviews. What's your favorite movie of all time? Other countries have been in a similar position, as you know, for some time. The United States is pretty much wide open and things seem to be going well. The UK was approaching wide open and have backed off. They have delayed their reopening plans by a month. Why? Delta variant. They are concerned about the Delta variant, the way it is spreading in that country. Um, We know there's been an outbreak of the Delta variant at the Foothills Hospital in Calgary. Some people are concerned it could cause problems in Alberta, too. So... Let's find out everything that we need to know about the Delta variant and how concerned we should be about it. Joining us now is Dr. Levon Abrahamian. Doctor, thank you for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Thank you for the invitation. Now, this Delta variant, uh, it emerged uh, out of India months ago now, and it has been identified as a variant of concern in Canada. What do we know about it so far? What is the major concern? Far more transmissible is the big one, right? Yes, you're right. Actually, it's not a new variant. It was known uh, from December, mm-hmm. actually, uh, and it's quickly become a dominant or predominant variant in India. And then, when it's appeared in the United Kingdom, uh, it's again become a very, uh, uh, very important variant in in United Kingdom. And now it's accounting about 96% of all sequenced and genotyped cases. Uh, and the main problem, is, I mean, there are two uh, important aspects. Um, it's a, a, a very um, fast spread, uh, spread of virus. Right. The transmissibility of this virus, uh, this variant, is higher. Uh, it's estimated that it's 50-60% more, more efficient in transmission and uh, also the severity of the disease and certain resistance to the vaccines and, anti- uh, and monoclonal antibodies. Yeah. All this together makes this uh, a, a, a variant of concern, which uh, is classified now as a, as a variant of concern. Now, you mentioned something there, and we keep hearing this talk about it. We always hear that things get much, much worse when one of these variants becomes the so-called dominant strain, as the Alpha Mm -hmm. variant from the UK did here in Alberta not long ago. Um, Are we approaching that anywhere in Canada, and why is it such a concern when it becomes the dominant strain? Um, It's the paint of the uh, um, pathogenicity, or basically uh, the, the clinical implications. A, the, the predominant or dominant uh, strain or variant can be less pathogenic when it's uh, not uh, a, a, an alarming issue. It's not a, a public health issue or problem. But um, if the predominant or dominant um, variant is a, a more pathogenic or includes a certain uh, changes in the dynamic of pandemia, pandemics, for example, uh, a faster spread or um, affecting a different age group or having a, a more severe clinical implication, then it is concern for us. Then we have to uh, develop certain um, measurements or adjust uh, the, 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 the policy which we have now in order to protect our population. The main, of course, 
control measure is vaccination. There is no doubt about that. What do we know about vaccination with this Delta variant? As you said, um, there's some concern, especially around first dose being not all that effective, right? Yes. Uh, It was shown that um, mRNA-based vaccines, uh, so Pfizer and Moderna, uh, both of them were uh, very efficient uh, uh, against this variant. Um, around 90 to 96%, according to recent publications. So, um, but the problem is a, a little bit less um, efficacy, um, which was uh, reported for um, virus-based, uh, adenovirus-based vaccines like AstraZeneca, for example. It's about 66%. So what is important is that it was shown that um, even after two weeks, after second dose, um, certain people can be infected. But definitely second dose, it's uh, providing a better protection. So uh, the, the overall recommendation is to get your second dose as it was scheduled and uh, this will protect you much better than just single dose. Yeah, exactly. The second dose is so important, especially in dealing with this virus. Now, you said the severity of the illness is more. Does it come on the same? Does it present the same? Are the symptoms the same or are we seeing any change in the way that it affects people? It seems like, uh, according to some reports, uh, the symptoms are, are slightly different from what was known for a classical, right. let's say, uh, COVID-19. If a COVID-19, uh, the most common, let's say, visible symptoms have been uh, fever, continuous cough, uh, loss of smell or taste. Uh, so for this variant, apparently main symptoms of infection are um, headaches or throat, runny nose, and it can affect also apparently um, the younger population, but we should be careful about this interpretation of this data because in most of cases, in many countries, um, the, uh, let's say the senior population, the, the people above 65, 60 years old have been already uh, vaccinated while the younger population, uh, it's not completely covered by the vaccination. So that could be the reason why maybe in some areas uh, the younger population is kind of more, more affected by this variant. Makes sense. Makes perfect sense. Okay, so I guess the question here is, uh, we've always talked about a race between the vaccine and the variant, and we know that uh, mm-hmm. Canadian provinces are starting to reopen, probably two weeks away from wide open here in Alberta. What do we need to know about this Delta variant? You know, I think, our, you know, the percentage of, you know, how prevalent it is among COVID cases in Alberta is still relatively low. Um, when does it start to get concerning and maybe have an effect on reopening? At what percentage or when it becomes dominant, what do we need to keep in mind for benchmarks? Okay, the surveillance is very important, of course. That is why all Canadian uh, public health facilities uh, which are uh, um, working on this and research groups, they are uh, carefully analyzing the situation. I should tell you that I don't want to scare anybody, but uh, in the United States in May, 
this variant was uh, accounting just 2.7, uh, 2.5% of the cases. Now it's estimated that it reached already 10% of uh, all new cases of uh, uh, COVID-19. And in some actually uh, states of United States, it's uh, reached actually even of a higher percentage. Uh, it's 25, 26% of the cases. So, uh, and in, uh, when we talk initially about the United Kingdom, uh, it becomes a very uh, quickly a dominant uh, uh, variant in the United Kingdom. It's a complete, like now accounting about 90, 96% of the new uh, cases which have been sequenced. So, uh, basically, and that is why, as you said uh, at, the, at the beginning of this discussion, the United Kingdom uh, decided to yeah. uh, uh, schedule their opening um, uh, measurements, etc. Uh, so, I would say that it's highly depend uh, on uh, what is the percentage of the population which is um, vaccinated with two doses, for both doses. So if we reach in many, and in many places we already reach 70, 75% of coverage, then we can be a, a, a bit more confident about this plans uh, of reopening uh, in the in the areas where we have the much lower coverage by the, uh, the vaccination, I would say that it is, in theory, possible to have a third wave of the uh, um, infection um, pandemic because pandemics, because it, it is actually logical to expect that if there are people who are not vaccinated sure. and there is a new variant which is actually uh, a more aggressive, uh, in sense of spread faster, so it, it could be expected that these uh, populations which have not been covered yet uh, sufficiently by vaccination campaign, so they could uh, uh, present this uh, first work with. Yeah, absolutely. Makes perfect sense. Uh, Doc, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. That is Dr. Levon Abrahamian, a virologist uh, at the University This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss of Montreal. We're going to have an interesting discussion here, and it, it kind of fits perfectly with the announcement from the federal government this morning in terms of the border remaining closed up until July 21st, when I think a lot of people thought that it would open sooner than that, and there's been a tremendous amount of pressure on getting it reopened. Um, Canada and the U.S. do share the longest undefended border in the world, but 
doesn't mean it's always been free from all forms of conflict. We're seeing what's going on right now. Uh, there has long been friction, though, between the two sides. It does change, right? Uh, if you think about it, not all that long ago, you know, 25 years ago or something like that, it really wasn't a border uh in any way comparable to what it is now. You you didn't even need a passport to get across the U.S. border. But as we know, those days are gone. Uh, And it seems like the the divergence in ideals and attitudes has become deeper, and the countries perhaps are heading in different directions on a number of issues. Uh, So let's get some insight onto where we're headed and what it might look like down the road with Dr. Christopher Kirkey, who is the director of the Centre for the Study of Canada at the State University of New York at Plattsburgh. Dr. Kirky, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Shay. Great to join you. Now, we're talking about this, you know, this longest undefended border in the world, separating two very, very close allies. But in reality, it is much more of a border now than it ever has been, certainly when I was younger. And as I said, you didn't even need a passport at one time. It's definitely become more of a border than before, right? It has, and it's going to continue in that direction. The truth is that... Uh, You know, um, I grew up in uh, Cornwall, Ontario, and we used to go across the border to Messina, New York, or to the Adirondacks, and frankly, the idea of having a passport uh, never entered anyone's mind. But now, with everything going on, it's certainly uh, getting more difficult by the day, it seems. And it hasn't been, um, you know, a, a sudden flip of the switch. This has happened slowly over time on a number of issues. Let's go back to when we started to see the border get a little more intense. Um, would that be 9-11 or did it start before then too? No, I think I think the, the, the sort of benchwater mark certainly is 9-11 because uh, all of a sudden, uh, you know, who could get in, how fast they could get in, what paperwork or what kind of credentials they needed to cross the border, be it for, um, you know, just visiting family or a day of shopping or whether it was for commercial interests, uh, shipping materials across the border. It certainly changed. It got much thicker after that and it's going to you know, um, the life, uh, I guess, uh, in the what will at some point hopefully be the post-COVID period, mm-hmm. at least in terms of uh, uh, major concerns, uh, will only exacerbate that. Um, no question. It continued, right? I mean, let's say 9-11 oh, yeah. was sort of the trigger point, but along the path over the last 20 years since 9-11, there's been one thing after another that has sort of pushed it further into that separate direction, right? It has, and it's going to continue. There's, there's no way to foresee what's next. Yeah. Um, but that, tr- that trend isn't going back anytime soon. Let's put it that way. The days of just showing up and say hi. Uh, my name's Chris, and I live in Cornwall. And I'm just going over to see my aunt and uncle in Messina. Those days are gone forever. Um, so. And it's continuing to move farther apart. Why? What, do you, what are you seeing that sort of it, we're not coming well, together? We're moving farther apart. I think both countries are, and I don't think a lot of, you know, as a fellow Canadian, um, I don't think a lot of folks in Canada necessarily recognize that, or or, uh, here in the States, I don't think they think about it, quite frankly. Part of the reason for this divergence is, um, you know, uh, the world that Canada and the United States occupy now is very different, for example, if you contrast it with the post-1945 period. Canada and the United States come out of World War II as allies, working closely together, all kinds of fundamental military cooperation during the war. And all of a sudden, the world that they inherit after the defeat of the Soviet Union, Japan, and Nazi Germany is very different. You don't have a yeah. whole lot of great powers. You only have two great powers. You have the United States and the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union is quickly determined to be 
uh, an expansionist power that, you know, you need to counter, you need to contain. And Canada becomes part of that apparatus. They fundamentally work with the United States in forging NATO. We have continental defense that emerges formally in the 1950s with the establishment of NORAD in May of 58. Um, and you have all kinds of um, trade, business, investment, foreign direct investment that percolates post-45, right, uh, right through uh, the Auto Pact and Canada-U.S. Free Trade Agreement and NAFTA. But then all of a sudden, once again, the world fundamentally changes Christmas of 1991. And how does it change? Well, Soviet Union disappears, Russia's on the scene. Why is that important? Well, it's important because you've gone from a world with two great powers to one. In a world with two great powers from 45 to 91, the logic for Canada was to cooperate. It made sense. Yeah. In fact, the incentives were in place for Ottawa to say to Washington and for Washington to say to Ottawa, let's work together. Well, guess what? That changed fundamentally post-1991. So a lot of people will look at the world over the last 10, 20 years, and they'll look at various prime ministers and presidents. They'll look at Prime Minister Harper, Prime Minister Martin Chrétien, Trudeau and the like. And in the States, they'll look at, you know, Bill Clinton, George Bush, Barack Obama, um, Donald Trump, of course, uh, and now Joe Biden. And they'll say, geez, you know, you can really chalk up the differences, the divergence in the relationship to sort of these guys not getting along. We don't have a, a healthy, robust working relationship or it depends on what political party is in power in Ottawa and Washington. That's really the, the prime indicator of whether Canada and the United States are going closer together or they're set. And I'm suggesting very clearly that's not the prime reason. The prime reason is all of a sudden, post-1991, all those incentives that were in place for Ottawa to reach out to Washington, and more importantly, for Washington to reach out and work with Ottawa, have really, really weakened. Um, so the, the incentives aren't in place for both partners, particularly the United States, particularly the U.S., to reach out and look to Canada. Um, that's just the facts. So... Yeah, I mean, it is interesting, and you know what, I think we, we're seeing it played out right now when we're talking about this border opening. We've heard from countless American politicians, Chuck Schumer, um, you know, all kinds of different groups along the border uh, saying, we need to get this border opened ASAP, um, but then we hear from the federal government in Canada today that, no, we're, we're going to push it back for another month. So it doesn't seem like you're right. They're, they're not working in lockstep here. They're sort of, they're, they're following their own agendas. They, they are, and quite honestly, it reflects a couple things. Obviously, the immunization rates, uh, f uh, either partially or fully immunized rates in the United States um, as a whole, collectively, are higher than in Canada. Canada's playing a bit of catch-up for reasons that are familiar to everybody. Um, but that's not to say that there are certain regions in the United States, like the Northeast, um, where the rates are considerably higher than, say, in Alabama or Mississippi. Um, and so there's some consternation there. Um, but I think what's interesting is that whereas Canada, at the outset of this COVID pandemic, when you think of Canada and the United States, Canada looked at it largely from a science-driven perspective um, in terms of making guidelines and policies, whereas the United States was very political at the outset um, under the Trump administration. And those roles have somewhat reversed. The United States seems to be far more science-driven now, and Canada seems to be far more politically driven in terms of its determinations, as opposed to science, putting science first. A lot of the considerations, including the decision today not to move quicker 
yeah. and not to set out some guidelines for folks is really driven by voices in Ottawa, driven by, by voices in provincial capitals where premiers are saying, no, 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 we're hearing from our people. We don't want that border open because my Lord, that will have all these crazy Americans up here who are either partially or not vaccinated. And, you know, what is going to happen? Um, so th- there's there's a certain, I guess, pol- you know, political considerations, surprisingly, in some respects, have have emerged at the forefront of Canadian decision making. So ultimately, what is the consequence? What is the risk? Or is it is it a positive to see this growing apart in this long standing close relationship as we start to sort of be a little more independent and do things differently? Um, is that a good thing or a bad thing for Canadians? That's a great question. Um, I think what I think we, we can expect the following, and that is. If the world, you know, the world's in a state of flux right now, we know that because we see um, uh, arguably China's power on the rise and there's some question about a reformulated Russian state and what kind of threats they pose on a global stage. As long as sort of the United States has free reign in the world, which it has at least since 1991 and sort of has been the top dog um, and has greater flexibility and greater elbow room in terms of its uh, decision-making process, then, you know, the the Canada-U.S. relationship and Canada's importance to Washington will be of less concern. However, as we move on and as we're moving on and we're seeing the rise of potential security threats like Russia and China, again, that puts Canada back into play in terms of facilitating a closer relationship. So I guess what I'm suggesting is we're just in a period right now, um, and if you had to sort of pull out your crystal ball and look 25 years down the road, I don't think we're going to... I mean, while Washington and Ottawa, Edmonton, Calgary, Sacramento, California may have diverged, if you will, in some respects, the truth is um, uh, there's always... uh, you know, strong reasons to think that that's it, it's a temporary phase. It's not a permanent phase. And 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 at the fundamental level, that relationship will always be one of cooperation and alliance and um, and close it, partnership, right? It will. That won't change. Yeah. It's the you know it's the degree to which uh, that changes. Um, but no, the, the, those are sort of. There's nothing to suggest um, that. Um, those fundamental building blocks are going to uh, change in any way. Great discussion, Doctor. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Delighted, and uh, uh, hello to my family out in Alberta. So thank Where you very much. Uh, have uh, a brother and some nephews, uh, both in the Fort Saskatchewan area, and then I have a nephew who lives down in Brooks. Um, so uh, lots of love to all them. Okay, excellent, Doctor. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Anytime. Have a great day now. Thanks. You too. Cheers. That's Dr. Christopher Kirky, a fascinating discussion, uh, the director of the Centre for the Study of Canada at the State University of New York at Plattsburgh. Taking a look at uh, the Rotten Tomatoes. Okay, what's the greatest movie of all time? It's Godfather, right? I don't, I don't think that's even up for debate. Not for me personally. Blues Brothers, okay, you could throw that in the conversation. Uh, for me, you've got Blues Brothers, you've got Godfather, one and two, um, Stand By Me, Goodwill Hunting, Jurassic Park. Those are your best movies of all time. This is the top five 
from Rotten Tomatoes. It happened one night from 1934. Never heard of it. Modern Times, 1936. Never heard of it. Number three, Black Panther, 2018. Black Panther is a good movie. Is it the third best movie of all time? No. It's not the third best movie I saw in 2018. It's an okay movie. Number four, Citizen Kane from 1941. That one always gets rated as one of the best, right? And another one that uh, gets very good reviews, number five, The Wizard of Oz from 1939. Um, But for me, Rotten Tomatoes is, is no longer worth looking at. Listen to this. Incredibles 2 is in the top 100. Incredibles 2 is a cartoon, I think. Right, Sarah? Incredibles 2 is the little superhero family? Yeah, it's it's the second to The Incredibles. Well, how come Incredibles didn't crack the top? What? Well, I think it's because Incredibles 2 was so anticipated because they waited like, I can't remember how many years in between the two. Yeah, okay. It was quite a while in between the two. I saw Incredibles 1. It's an okay movie. It's not in the top 100 movies that I've seen. Knives Out. Have you seen Knives Out with Daniel Craig 2019? Great movie. Good movie. Really good movie. Number nine overall. Not a chance. Not even remotely close to number nine overall. It's a good movie. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but I think this whole Rotten Tomatoes thing, we're, we're putting too much stock into it. It's, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, there's some that are non-negotiable. And Knives Out doesn't belong in the top ten. So... Do, do, do you pay attention to Rotten Tomatoes? Do you care? What is the best movie of all time? Am I wrong? It's Godfather, right? We can agree on that. Some of you on the listener line saying, no, no, no. Uh, Pulp Fiction? Nah. Princess Bride? No, definitely not. D.Y. says Big Lebowski? Great movie. Great movie. Uh, he also mentions Old School Lords of Dogtown, 3,000 Miles to Grace Lounge, Deuce is Wild. Uh, George says Star Wars. Star Wars is a good movie. No doubt you can't argue about that. Terry in Calgary saying shakes the clown. Somebody else asking, where's Quentin Tarantino? Well, we did get the Pulp Fiction from the one listener, so he's getting some representation. This listener says, Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump's a good movie, but I think it's overrated. Sound of Music. Zen says Sound of Music. No, definitely not. Certainly not. Um, 780-496-0063. We've got a million different discussions on the go this morning. If you want to talk about movies, sure, we can do that. Why not? It is Friday. Um, but uh, we are awaiting the announcement less than two hours now uh, until the announcement from Jason Kenny and Tyler Shandro in terms of what's going to be happening with Phase 3. Because we know we were so close to the 70% threshold as of yesterday. We're pretty much... There. We, we know we're there. It's just a matter of when did we get there and when does the countdown clock start. So how do you feel about that? Too much? Too soon? You ready to go? I am. I am. Let's do it. Let's see what happens. Um, the border. The federal government announcing this morning they're not opening the border until at least July 21st. So if you had plans to take the kids down to Disneyland, that complicates things. We know you can get across the border, uh, but at the same time, it's you know makes it different with the quarantine and the rules coming back and all that sort of stuff. And then the whole AstraZeneca messaging that came out, too, is (sighs) troubling. It's problematic, to put it lightly, because it just gets more and more confusing. Drew wants to tell me about the best movie ever. Hi, Drew. Hi, I'd say uh, in my top five would be uh, Dazed and Confused. No, that's a good one. One of the greatest soundtracks out there, too. Yep, okay. Dazed and Confused. Yeah, Yeah, not bad. Yeah, I'd put it in top five, and uh, definitely Godfather 1, Godfather 2, and then Dazed and Confused. I'm not going to argue with that list. I can respect that list. Thanks, Drew. Have a good day. Uh, I see you all Shawshank Redemptions.
sending in the text for Shawshank. Uh, yeah, good movie. Great movie. Uh, Josie's with me. Blues Brothers, number one. No arguing. Of course there's no arguing. You want to talk about a soundtrack? Nothing comes close. And guest stars? Stop it. Aretha Franklin, Ray Charles, John Candy, James Brown. I mean, the list just goes on and on. It's a who's who, right? Blues Brothers is as good as it gets. Uh, Dr. Zhivago, Colin says. Lord of the Rings Trilogy. Has to place pretty high. Goodfellas up there pretty high, too. Good morning, Vietnam. An all-time favorite for this listener. Um, That's June. Yeah, that's a great movie, too. Uh, Jurassic Park, the original 1993 film. Nothing touches it. Yeah, I... That movie for me was a game changer. That was, it was mind blowing. It, I mean, the sound and, and the graphics, uh, incredible, absolute game changer for movie going for me. Phenomenal, phenomenal movie. Tony. Yeah, how you doing? Good, how are you? Yeah, one of my movies were The Ten Commandments. Okay, yeah, Charlton Heston, yeah. right? Yeah, and there was another one, but not many people have heard that it's Christopher Reeves. He played in the movie called Somewhere in Time with Jane Seymour. Somewhere in Time with Jane Seymour. I never, what's it about? Well, what happens is he's, he, he, was, he, was, he was a writer, and so he wanted to get away from it all. He stayed at a hotel, and in the hotel there's some pictures of old of actors many years back, and he fascinated with this woman, Jane Seymour, so... What he did, to cut it short, he got old clothes on, and he believed he could go back in time. He talked to a professor, and the professor told him how to do this, and apparently he went back in time. Then he fell in love with this woman, and then just out of the blue one day, he pulled a coin out of his pocket. It was a coin up to date, and he drifted back into the into the past, into the future, like as now. Oh, cool. And, then what and he died of a broken heart. Interesting. That's I'm called some, somewhere in time. It was. I've got. I've got the video. Of this. I've watched it so many times. It's a bit of a tearjerker, but it's <laughs> it's really really good. Believe me. Okay, Tony. I appreciate it. I've never heard of that one. Christopher Reeve, Jane Seymour, and Somewhere in Time. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.